All right, back on the Young Turks. I just checked on wolf-pack.com slash film again. And it's up to $7,339, but we gotta get to $50,000 to be able to make the movie. So let's keep it going, guys. We appreciate it. It's a movie about hope. I remember there was a guy who came up to me in Miami and talked about how, look, I didn't think there was, I didn't wasn't into politics because I didn't think there was anything that could be done until I started watching you guys. And I realized, and then he wound up joining Wolfpack. And it was a great, great story. But we can win, and we want to make a short movie that shows how we can win and actually save our democracy. So wolf-pack.com/slash/film. All right, let me go to my next guest. Joining me now is Caleb Kane. He was featured in a New York Times story about how young guys online can be radicalized. So. Caleb, it was a really fascinating story. It also had, in my opinion, a significant problem, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Caleb, in that story, you started out as liberal, if I'm getting this right, and then was radicalized on YouTube. So let's talk about that first. When you started watching YouTube videos, would you have considered yourself a liberal or a progressive? Yeah, hi, Shank. Thanks for having me on. Um, I would have probably, I guess I would have been called a progressive. I just called myself a liberal back then. The thing is, is like, I didn't have like, you know, I was young. I didn't have like a strong base in my ideology. I think I might have watched your all show a little bit on YouTube back then. I know I used to listen to a lot of political music like System of a Down. I had watched a couple Chomsky interviews. So I was very much like anti-war. I was against, you know, the Bush era. I would watch Michael Moore documentaries and stuff like that. But I didn't have a strong philosophical base in why I was a liberal. It was mostly just you know, I wanted a better world, and you know, I was against the, you know, I was against the damage to the environment and against the war and against things like racism. Uh, so yeah, I think it's fair to say I was a liberal, maybe even a progressive back in those days. And Caleb, um, so what we just showed was uh, the cover of the New York Times story, and it was a collection of the videos that you had watched. Now most of them were right wing as you were getting radicalized, but there was uh, a video in there of me fighting with Alex Jones. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you remember watching that? I don't know. It must have been someone else's video because it's got that cartoon character and the orange-haired guy in the middle of us. Um, do you remember that or no? I don't know if I remember that video. I, I'm, I'm a little ashamed to say. Uh, you know, I used to watch a lot of Steven Crowder back then. And uh, I used, you know, I remember on the election night specifically, year old, I tuned in to your old stream. Now, mind you, I was a Donald Trump supporter. I voted for Donald Trump, but your all's stream is the one that I watched that night. Uh, you know, so I, I don't remember watching that specific video, but it was, you know, there's the whole, you know, owning liberals, you know, vibe that was going on. I was very much in that headspace. Oh yeah, okay. And where'd you grow up, Caleb? I grew up in a small town in West Virginia. Okay, and so okay, so you start watching these videos. How did you get quote unquote radicalized by the right wing then? So it started like slowly at first. It started with Stefan Molyneux's channel. I'd found it because I had been through a period of depression after college. I dropped I dropped out of college because most I was depressed and wasn't going to class, wasn't taking my studies seriously, and I had lost my. Pell Grant to go to school because of withdrawing. And I felt very broken and defeated. And so I went to YouTube for self-help and I found Stefan Molyneux. And Stefan basically red-pilled me. You know, I became a libertarian, like an ANCAP, 
and then I drifted into conservatism. Uh, mostly the justification there was you can't have that anarchist and you know libertarian society unless you have strong uh, social cohesion, moral values, a strong border. And then from there, I basically like lost a lot of respect for many conservatives and drifted into what what they call civic nationalism. But it's really just. Uh, it's it's when you're starting to verge basically on ethno-nationalism, honestly. If you look at implicitly what you're saying, you're saying that everyone has to adapt to this single culture, and that culture just so happens to be white culture. Um, you know, back then I would have called it Western civilization, stuff like that. And so I through these YouTube videos, uh, I would watch, I would basically just piggyback off one content creator to the next. I would watch Molyneux, Molyneux would have you know, someone on his show, I'd start watching that show. You know, I basically I went from watching Molyneux to watching Crowder and Shapiro in them. And then eventually I would see, you know, like Lauren Southern, Gavin would come on people's like Dave Rubin's show, or they would come on Steven Crowder's show. And so I started listening to Gavin and Lauren Southern. Um, and I was just like gravitating deeper and deeper into far right ideology. Uh, towards the end, I was listening to Jared Taylor, who I so I who I'd found through other content creators that had done interviews with him, and so it was a combination of the kind of collaboration that right wing you know platforms do with each other, uh, and also the algorithm. And just real quick to say on the collaboration is it's not so much that they go on each other's shows, but they go on each other's shows and they're very favorable to each other. My, the best example I can think of is. Uh, the Stefan Molyneux conversation that he had with Dave Rubin. Another big one is the conversation that Lauren Chen, Roaming Millennial, had with Richard Spencer. They're, they're good examples of how of irresponsible platforming in my mind. Okay, super interesting. There's so many things I want to ask about, but that last one yeah. really uh, caught my attention. So, why does it matter that they're so positive to one another? How how, how does that help them uh, when you were in that state of mind become more legitimate? So it's a foolish thing that I was doing back then, but you look for authority figures and you look for validation of your ideas. So if if Steph if you if you trust Steph, Stefan Molyneux, and he has on, you know, someone on his show, well you're probably and they have a they have a cordial conversation and agree on a lot, you're probably going to, you know, trust that person as well. And you go through this pipeline of just piggybacking from one content creator to the next. And so those cordial conversations where they don't really challenge the person's beliefs, you begin to think, well, this person's on my side, so there's probably a lot of good in what they're saying. And that's that's kind of the effect that it had on me. Did you watch any Dave Rubin videos back then? I watched uh, Dave Rubin's show almost religiously. I liked Dave's show because he would have, it was constant, uh, you know, a constant stream of different people coming on. Uh, and so, yeah, I watched Dave Rubin's show a lot. And, uh, you know, he would have people like Molyneux on there. Uh, he had some other figures on there that I think are, you know, pretty, Pretty out there, um, but yeah, Dave's show is a huge show that I watched. And so, when people like Milo were on there, Molyneux, etc., you, mm -hmm. you think that wound up in your mind back then, legitimizing them because here's Dave Rubin, a big show in your mind, uh, having conversations with these guys. Yeah, I saw Dave Rubin as part of like you know they call themselves the alternative news, right? The alt news. And uh, I saw, yeah, I, I saw his uh, show as being a big validator because uh, I saw his show as like a more mainstream centrist show. So I thought, well, if he has Milo and Molyneux on there, I mean, these people, it's just like showing that they have credibility. 
that's how I took it. Like when I saw Molyneux on there, I was like, oh, this is great, you know. Um, another another instance I can remember is Sam Harris. Uh, while Sam Harris would have a lot of opposing views on his podcast, I remember the Charles Murray interview in particular it was very validating to me for the race and IQ stuff that I was into. You know what they call race realism. Yeah. So then I wanted to go back to that. So. There's this irony that the libertarians then turn around and go, we have to have cultural cohesion. Well, that would seem to be the opposite of libertarianism, wouldn't it? Where we force one particular culture down everybody's throats instead of letting everybody have freedom and choose whatever they want. Well, this is where the libertarians kind of differ from the rest of the party, right? So the libertarians do exist in a space of their own. And there are many libertarians which are more critical of people on the you know, further to the right to them. Um, but for me, I was following this logic train of, well, the liber you know, those libertarians, they're naive. Uh, you know, they they don't they don't really get it. They think that this society is going to work, but in order for that society to work, there's other things that have to come into play first. Right. And so uh, of course that leads to the question of how did you snap out of it? So basically, I probably would have been, I probably would have kept going. Um, I was listening to Jared Taylor. I was listening to a lot of American Renaissance because uh, he would have a lot of people at his conference. And uh, around that same time that I was listening to Taylor, I had found uh, Destiny, Stephen Bennell, the Twitch streamer. Uh, he went in and basically debated with a lot of these people within the alt right. And the only way that I found him was because he did those debates. Uh, if it hadn't been for that, he never would have gotten into my algorithm. And this is why I talk about the algorithm so much. It's, it's a the algorithm. It's a it's a filter bubble. And what online what's happened is tech companies have created filter bubbles, whether that's cat videos or sewing videos, you know, to teach you how to sew, or whether that's politics. They throw you into a filter bubble. The algorithm does in order to sell you ad dollars, targeted ads. And so I was very much in that bubble. But what Destiny did was he stepped into their filter bubble and created a bridge over to, you know, I guess what you would call progressive politics. And I started watching Destiny. Destiny then did an interview with ContraPoints. I watched that video from ContraPoints. And so it's pretty much the same process that got me into the, the rabbit hole. It's the same kind of process that got me out of it. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway when I had I had when getting out was, uh, tr not trusting in what you just see on, the, on on YouTube and not just following people blindly. But it's a lesson I had to learn the hard way. And did you wind up watching other progressive shows after ContraPoints? Yeah, I, the shows that I probably watched the most, I watch David Pakman a lot. I watch uh, The Majority Reports, probably the one I watch the most. I watch your all show a bit. I like watching the spots with Anna. Uh, so yeah, I did start watching some progressive stuff. I've watched for stuff further to the left of that than that as well. But I've kind of found myself more grounded and not really gravitating uh, into deep rabbit holes anymore. Uh, that's interesting. You know, it was weird that the New York Times left out some of the larger progressive shows that that you listened to or watched, including <laughs> Majority Report, Young Turks, etc. Did you tell them about that and they didn't include it, or maybe they just uh, you guys didn't get to that in the conversation? I was curious. Yeah, I told them that I said, I said, I, they asked me what news I watched and they said, do you, so do you watch CNN and stuff? And I was like, well, I don't really watch CNN and stuff like that. I don't really, I, I don't like corporate news. Uh, so I told them, yeah, I said, I told, I mean, I was very adamant about, you know, Sam's show. I really like Sam Cedar and his show. So I did tell them that. I told them that I watched The Young Turks. I told them about David Pakman. So yeah, I mean, they didn't, they didn't mention that in there. They talked about Destiny and ContraPoints and that was about it. 
Yeah, look, my theory on that is that it uh, that the guy who wrote the article had a point he wanted to make about how big the right wing was online and on YouTube. And that if he mentioned the larger shows like us, well, we're larger than any of the right wing shows. So that would have been inconvenient to the rest of the article. So I think that's probably why he left it. That's my theory. I don't know if you know anything more than that. Uh, no, I wouldn't say anything. Know anything more than that? I, I had some people make criticisms to say, well, you know, there's the lefty shows are way bigger than these right wing shows, and that disproves the whole theory of the pipeline. But I mean, the the problem with that is when you're on the right wing, you're only you're stuck in the filter bubble. So it doesn't matter how big any other show is, if there's no interaction between the two, you're you're stuck there. And then what they do is they put you in a walled garden where they teach you not to listen to other sources. So I wouldn't have even listened to your show back then. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, uh, Caleb, that's super interesting. One last thing before we let you go. What are you Absolutely. doing today uh, to help others get out of those bubbles? So now, um, basically, I have my YouTube channel where I'm trying to tell my experience. In the future, I want to do video essays debunking a lot of the alt-right's talking points and maybe you know host debates. Uh, also, the biggest thing that I have going on right now is we have set up a Discord server. And on that server, we're basically trying to have conversations with people within the alt-right. And uh, you know, basically talk them down from their positions and kind of show them the other side of things. I believe that like exposure is is the best you know is the best solution here. So we have that Discord server, and we're looking to give people emotional support, uh, give them that support that they might be lacking, and then also show them the other side of of what they're involved with. What's the name of your YouTube channel? The YouTube channel is Faraday Speaks. Uh, it's you spell Faraday is F A R A D A Y. S P E A K S. So one last thing, Caleb. Actually, um, so have you gotten a lot of hate from the, those uh, right wingers since uh, you got deprogrammed in SS? <laughs> Absolutely, I get a lot. I get uh, I'm dumb. Uh, I uh, just I'm you know I was uh, I had no. I'm saying that I had no agency. I also get you know. The typical, you know, they call you the C word. I don't know if I can say that one on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what that one but, uh, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can say so, that. One. Uh, I, I, yeah, I get called a cuck and a soy boy all the time. So uh, <laughs> they're they're very upset. Uh, interesting enough, they also think that the New York Times planted my first video, and they also think that I'm an FBI agent. Um, so I'm at the center of a conspiracy now. It seems uh, so, all but right. it's to be expected. Are you now, or have you ever been an FBI agent? I have never been an FBI agent. I guess I probably wouldn't tell you that, but mm, no, I've never been an FBI agent. That's agent. right. Are you one of the 19 angry Democrats that framed Trump? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a Russian spy. I'm just deep in there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, those conspiracy theories. I don't know. They get they get it, a little convoluted. Well, what what it, it what exposed me to? So I had believed in a lot of conspiracies, and what it really brought light to light to me was being in you know, the center of some conspiracies showed me like how crazy some of those ideas are. So I, that's what we want to do on the Discord server is kind of show people the, the other side of things. And you can find that server in the link to the description on all my videos. Yeah, and, and guys, look, last thing, if, you, if you're if you wondering if you're a right winger, left winger, it doesn't matter, right? And you're wondering, well, who's right? Okay, go watch, but watch all the videos from both sides, okay? Not all of them, but at least some of the videos from both sides. And it's so easy for us to disprove the right wing. So they'll say things like, 
Oh, left wingers are cucks. And then they'll turn around and go, oh, we gotta have men's rights. Women won't sleep with us and we're pathetic. So we, you know, I believe in Jordan Peterson's forced monogamy where they're forced to sleep with us. Wait, who's the cuck? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all, right? There's uh, too many overcorrections for things. They they react too extremely. Yeah, and so uh, go out there and discover for yourselves. We're not in the camp of only listening to the left wing uh, or only uh, look at the bubbles. We're not afraid of a free marketplace of ideas. Their ideas are hilariously wrong, and we love disproving them every day. And Caleb, I love that you were open-minded enough and smart enough to get out of that and to break out of that, and that you're helping others to do that. So thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Shane. All right, um, we're gonna take a quick break here. When we come back, a woman who wrote 100 times a memoir of sexism of a 100 different instances where ranging from sexual assault to sexism that she suffered in her own life starting at the age of five. So we'll do that when we return. All right, back on A Young Turks. Joining me now, Chavisa Woods, she's the author of 100 Times a Memoir of Sexism, that is 100 Instances of Sexual Harassment, Discrimination, and Assault that she personally experienced in her life. Chavisa, welcome to The Young Turks. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, obviously, fascinating. And most people are stunned by the number that it has happened to you 100 times. So uh, let's start with that. Do you think that's relatively normal for uh, a woman? Or did you suffer maybe a a little bit more than than the average woman in America? I'm not really sure what the average woman in America is. I think there are a lot of different intersecting factors that can cause a person to suffer more or less sexism in their life. But I think that most women have suffered um, a lot of the experiences that I lay out in this book. Um, I sort of tried to track the rites of passage from early childhood to adulthood. Um, I started at age five and it goes all the way through high school and then my 20s and ends now um, at 37 years old. All right, and so yes, it does start at the age of five. What happened then? Well, I started with an incident when I was five years old where a boy was pinching my butt. And I kept telling him to stop. And when I told on him, usually when I tell on people, when I told on boys or people who were hurting me, they got in trouble. And if I was doing something wrong as a child, I got in trouble. But when I told on this boy, the adults in the room laughed at me and told me I probably liked it. And that's the first time that I got a very clear message that if a boy was hurting me in a sexual way, that he wouldn't get in trouble. Hmm. That I would be blamed and it would be assumed that it was something that I brought on myself or that it was my fault. That's interesting. Um, I feel like there's a lot of different experiences throughout the country because we've now gotten into our own bubbles even more so than in the past. And so you experience sexism though at all levels in all different places. Because, and I say that because. I'm positive that your experience is very similar to the experience of a lot of women and probably the majority of women in this country. But I think that in in the fairly liberal place in LA where I live, if someone pinched my five-year-old daughter's butt, that the teachers would not have that reaction. If they did, I think they'd be in significant trouble. Do you think that it's improved in some pockets or do you not see that at all? 
Well, I think the fact that when we saw Christine Blasey Ford come forward um, along with multiple other women and that we've seen E. Jean Carroll recently come forward along with now, what is it? 23 women and accused Donald Trump of rape and sexual assault. And people are still pushing back on them saying the same thing. These women are just trying to get attention. You see that it is phenomenally problematic today in multiple spheres of society, including at some of the most powerful spheres of society. Yeah. I was particularly disappointed, as usual, with Nancy Pelosi's reaction to E. Jean Carroll. You know, seemed to be fairly dismissive of her. I don't know if you saw that comment by Pelosi. I didn't. What was it? No, she said something like, I don't know her story. And she dismissed it out of hand. And she had to then walk it back the next day when she got in trouble over it and said, Well, look, I'm sure it's you know, important, but I can't impeach everybody. Everybody wants to impeach everybody. So that didn't make it much better either. So, but I asked that in the context of, Unfortunately, do some women also enable this way of thinking because it's so deeply ingrained in the culture? I think so. I think from a very young age, men and women are socialized to think of women as significantly different creatures as men, especially when it comes to sexual desire. And when we tell boys from a young age that your sexual desire is normal, and when we tell girls from a young age that your job is to control voice sexual desire of you, that that already causes a very deep divide in the way that we view men and women as sexual creatures. The onus is always on women to stop it. And if it happens and you didn't want it, it's always your fault. Yeah, and I learned something from reading some of the what you wrote. You talk about how thoroughly men feel entitled to women's spaces and bodies. Tell us a little bit more about that for people who who don't yet get it or and want to understand. Yeah, so I've had many experiences where men on the street or in bars will be hitting on me. And I want to make very clear in this book, I didn't write anything about flirtation or someone hitting on me. And that's what mo- not what most women are speaking of. And when I say no or when I reject them, they're then angry with me. And some of them proceed to grab me. Actually, while I was writing this book, um, when I was on some of the last chapters, a man was coming on to me at a bar. And that's fine. We're adults. We can hit on each other. I don't mind. Um, But I told him no a couple of times. I actually said I'm waiting for my partner and her daughter to come and join us. And he said, oh, come on. I can tell you like me. And then he grabbed my breast. And um, that to me just showed that he thought that this was some sort of game that we were playing and that I was saying no to him as a way to force him to be more assertive with me. And that would somehow show me that he really liked me. But what he ended up doing was making me deeply uncomfortable and sexually assaulting me. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna say something here that, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, uh, but I think that in an older generation, including my generation, a lot of young women were taught to say no, even if they wanted to flirt or or like the guy, because they were taught that it's wrong that you know you're too promiscuous if you say yes right away. Am I out of bounds there, or do you think that 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 was the case and that led to? an even worse cycle of of men assuming, well, no, 
is what they're just saying to so that I can go further. You, you see what I'm saying by that? Yeah, I think that I see what you're saying with that. I don't think that a woman saying no should ever be taken as a yes. Um, sometimes women are raised to believe that you have to say no, that you can never express your sexual desire. Our sexual desire is repressed. Um, but you know, if a woman says no to you and you think she really means yes, then maybe that's not a woman that you should have a sexual interaction with. Um, you're not, men aren't owed sexual intimacy with women. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And so, look, I don't want anybody to get confused. No means no. That's clear. We've said it only a billion times. I hope it's finally gotten through to people. But I think that it didn't help, especially in maybe it's more immigrant cultures. I don't know. But I know in the old country, and I'm from Turkey, no parent ever taught their daughter to say yes. Even if you were interested, you were supposed to say no. Uh, no, 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 even if you're totally interested. God damn it, that's such a bad idea. <laughs> because then that I feel like enables men to then say, well, every no uh, means yes. And I couldn't have a worse uh, way of going about things. Um, I completely agree with you. I think a girl that isn't afraid to say yes to sex as clearly as she can say no to sex is also a girl that will not be afraid to come forward when she says no and someone doesn't listen. Because then she will not be afraid of the possible implication that maybe she wanted to have sex with someone. That's often why we're made to feel so ashamed about rape is when they say, well, you really wanted it. Wanted it. If we're not ashamed of really wanting it, and if we can say that I can have sexual desires just as clearly and intensely as men, and I can state when I do and I can state when I don't, um, then women are going to feel much more comfortable coming forward about rape because they can say, hey, look, I'm not ashamed to say that I wanted to have sex with that man. And that's the interesting thing about E. Jean Carroll. I met her today and did an interview with her, and she was saying she was flirting with President Trump. She wanted to have some sort of flirtatious, consensual interaction with him, and he was unwilling to let that happen. Yeah, and, and of course, as we've gone over also a billion times, just because somebody wants to flirt with someone doesn't mean that they want to be raped in a dressing room. I don't know why that's so hard to understand. So, but you also, you didn't name any of the guys in the book. I wanted to ask you about that real quick, why? I think that public persecution of individuals has huge limitations when trying to change systemic problems. Also. The media has really latched on to talking about famous and powerful men. And the men who have sexually harassed me, discriminated against me, assaulted me are not rich and famous men. Um, they are just working class, everyday, middle class, everyday men. And naming them would serve no other purpose than to destroy their lives. Um, and I did not write this book to destroy men's lives. I actually want men to read this book. And I'm hoping for some sort of empathetic understanding. So, but you also talk about getting these incidents that in in what people would consider to be very liberal or progressive circles, a St. Louis poetry scene, Occupy Wall Street, a New York lesbian bar. So, what happened in those instances, and and was it in a sense even more disappointing? 
Yeah, as you can probably see, um, I'm like a weird punk. I'm an artist. I hang out in a lot of bohemian spaces. I'm actually usually a fiction writer of very weird stories. Um, and I came in expecting those places to be much more liberal, and in many ways they were. Um, but I still found that among all classes and even in some very liberal spaces, that the same sort of thing persisted. Um, I used to go to a poetry club and we were kind of trying to blur the lines of what is appropriate in society in general in many different ways. But there was a man there who carried around a photo album full of women who had gotten drunk and flashed him. And I came for this like bohemian revelation, like an arts and cultural space. And he just kept asking me to take my shirt off and to flash him and to buy me a drink. And it really kind of felt to me more like I was participating in like spring break in Florida with a bunch of frat boys rather than a bohemian art space. Yeah, uh, all right, last thing is, um, are you at all hopeful that we're gonna fix this thing? I wouldn't have written this book if I weren't hopeful. I think that women sharing their stories um, Powerful narratives can propel social change by creating empathetic understanding. And I just want men to read the book and listen to the stories of women and just try to put yourselves in our position and understand that the cumulative impact that sexism has on women is absolutely unacceptable and it's a serious problem. I mean, my statement shouldn't be that controversial. It's just that sexism is real and it's bad. Yeah, look. I I'll give you hope because I, I, it's influenced me. Uh, every news story I see of sexism and sexual assault and all the other things that have happened um, gives me a more thorough understanding of what women have to live through in society. And I think that men really have a hard time understanding that because it's not their perspective. They just didn't grow up in it. They didn't live it, they did not experience it. So it takes a while to get through and, and to break through that perspective and that bubble. And so there was actually a couple of instances in your case, but one that really stands out was when straight guys would tell you when you said, no, I'm a lesbian, what a waste. And you said that that was a man being used to a woman being for his use. And if you're not for his use, then it's a waste. And I never thought about it that way. And it, like a little light bulb went over my head and I was like, yeah, what a weird way of phrasing it. And clearly that's what's in their subconscious. One of my favorite comedians, I actually go to this little show at the Cobra Club in Brooklyn every Friday. And one of my favorite comedians said, you know, you hear these guys saying lesbians, oh, what a waste. But do you ever really look down the street and see a woman walking with a man and say, oh, she's being put to good use? I mean, this is a really strange idea that we have in our heads. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, everybody, uh, make sure that you check out the book, uh, Hundred Times, A Memoir of Sexism. Shavisa, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me. All right. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break for all you members out there. We're gonna come back with Anna. Uh, and uh, since uh, Caleb, the earlier interview, gave her credit for uh, Converting her to being a progressive, she's going to be unbearable, and you guys are going to enjoy that. Uh, tyt.com slash trial uh, to become a member. We'll see you in a minute.